This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 70 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Tarek Hussein. We're talking about his debut book, Minarets in the Mountains, A Journey into Muslim Europe, which was published in June 2021 by Brat and was nominated for the Bailey Gifford Prize. In addition to chatting about his new book, we talk about dominant historical narratives, colonial cruft in travel literature, and decolonizing travel writing. Tarek also shares his experiences on his path to getting his book published and some candid insights into developing an area of expertise. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say that while the show is free, a lot of work goes into it. Please consider telling your friends about the show, leaving a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelridingworld.com forward slash support. And finally, if you're interested in getting my free monthly roundup of travel writing news delivered to your inbox in a newsletter I call Genius Loci, visit jeremybassetti.com to sign up. As ever, thanks for listening. So now, here is Tarek Hussein. Tarek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Jeremy. It's a real pleasure and an honor. Well, thanks for coming on. I invited you to to talk about your new book, Minarets in the Mountain, A Journey into Muslim Europe. And when when people think about Muslim Europe in terms of geography, I, I think they typically think of the Iberian Peninsula, so like Spain in particular. But your book tries to kind of shift the conversation out east to the Balkans, places like Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Albania, so on. Do you, do you hear the thunder? <laughs> yes, I heard that. Right? Oh, wow. Ominous, ominous. So draw us, <laughs> uh, draw us a sketch, if you can, um, of, of your trip and of the Islamic history in this part of Europe. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the reason that we headed to the area that we did, you're, you're absolutely spot on. Those who are a little bit um, read upon um, Muslim heritage in Europe, immediately think of the Iberian Peninsula. But that's a that's a historical Muslim presence that does not um, exist anymore, so to speak. That's not to say there aren't any Muslims. They, um, you and I both know that there is a, um, a kind of a modern, shall we say, uh, migrant population that it, it has also arrived from primarily from North Africa. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to make it clear that once the Muslim presence disappeared from Spain, that there was a continuity of what I call, quote unquote, Muslim Europe, and it's very much alive. So I wanted to take readers to a region where I, in my opinion, um, there is very much a a Muslim Europe that is still alive now. So I, I deliberately focused on three Muslim countries of Europe. And I'm using, I'm calling them Muslim countries, not because they self-identify as Muslim, Mm -hmm. but I'm just identifying them in that way because they are majority Muslim in population. So I think that qualifies them for that particular terminology. Um, And we have Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is over 50% Muslim, Albania, um, I think in in the 60s or the 70%, and and of course, Kosovo, which is more than 90%. Um, and, and the reason that I wanted to go to these three countries is one that the, the Muslim population is obviously an indigenous one, as in it's been there for centuries um, and, and they are very much alive. And then the countries around them um, also have a, a, very, a very kind of... Um, how can we put it, a flourishing and a, and a very healthy Muslim um, community and, and, and tons of Muslim heritage sitting in the neighboring countries such as Serbia, Montenegro um, and North Macedonia. Um, and in many of these places, I was aware that there was a kind of wonderful array of heritage that I 
viewed as my own as a Muslim of Europe and my family who are, of course, on this journey with me. So it was very much a journey in search of our heritage. Um, and this is why um, we wanted to go to, as you said yourself, a part of Europe that people don't immediately identify with um, Muslim Europe. Mm -hmm. you, you speak about the historical Muslim history in, in Spain, and then you talk about the indigenous and the current Muslim communities in that in the Balkans, in that part of the world. Um, the Ottoman Empire came to the Balkans, I don't know, around the 17th century? No, a lot earlier than that. So it actually arrived in the 14th century. Um, so um, the chapter where where I go and visit the tomb of Sultan Murad I, this is this is the moment um, the the kind of Ottomans um, quote unquote arrive in the Balkans and really take a foothold. So we're talking about um, 14th century. We're now in the 21st century. We're talking you know seven centuries ago. Okay, seven centuries ago, the Muslim presence arrives, and it's it's quite interesting because it kind of begins to solidify its presence just around the time um, that the Catholic monarchs um, begin to kick out the the um, the Jewish and the Muslims um, from the Iberian Peninsula. Right. So it's it's. Um, of course, it wasn't seamless, but I'm going to use the phrase just to talk about the continuity of Islam in Europe. We know it wasn't seamless. It was traumatic. It was horrific. It was, you know, Muslims being killed, Jews being killed and told that they have to leave their places where they've lived their whole lives and so on. But certainly from a chronologi um, chronological perspective and a presence perspective, you know, we, we had the Muslims in Iberia from, from around the 7th century when Muslims first arrived in Europe, um, um, in, in the first generation of Muslims, which is something right. that maybe uh, a lot of your listeners aren't aware of. You know, within that first generation, we have a presence in Cyprus and we have actual um, evidence of this. And then this continues right up until... Um, the, the 15th century, and of course, just around that time, the Ottomans are making their presence felt in the Balkans and Eastern Europe. Right. That, that's one of the impressive things about the history of, of religion. And I show my students uh, these, these maps, and I, I try to find maps that um, are kind of animated maps that they can really see, you know, visually, you know, mm -hmm. how ideas spread. And one of mm -hmm. the kind of just very, I, I guess, telling uh, maps is a, a map that I show of, you know, literally in the um, in the eighth century, right, and before that, Islam just kind of sweeping acro across the Maghreb, and mm -hmm. you know, entering into into Europe. So, as, as you mm -hmm. say, in the kind of foundational moments of 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 this powerful new religion, it's mm -hmm. literally in several different continents. In Spanish history, um, as you know, to, to a certain extent, it, Islam had been in, in Spain for some 800 years or so, right? And so exactly. that, that <laughs> it's hard for some of the students and uh, students to wrap their heads around how much time that is. I, I heard somebody mm -hmm. refer to um, people in, in Europe thinking uh, the American conception of distance is a lot mm -hmm. farther than we think it is. But our conception of history is a lot shorter than what Europeans think it is. So I try to paint the picture that this, you know, 800 years, that's a lot longer yeah. than, yeah. you know, what we know. I, I, some, of my, some of my Bosnian friends, when we were, um, you know, researching some of this, and one of them features in the book, um, he, he, says, he says to me, you know, Muslims are more European than white people are American. <laughs> we seem to forget this. You know, um, because yeah. they've been here for so long and yet you you have this um bizarre dialogue that has become normalized, this rhetoric, sorry, that has become normalized that somehow we are foreign to this mm -hmm. part of, of, of the world. <laughs> so yeah, I, I totally understand this this kind of um, sort of this um distinction between how we perceive time and and, and how how um Americans sometimes perceive time. <laughs> that's a that's a funny way to put it, but it's also um, you know, I'm laughing and we're laughing, but it's also kind of a, a sad way to put it in terms of how Indeed. narratives uh, really take hold and kind of mm -hmm. subvert the reality of things, right? And, and I think that's mm -hmm. ominous thunder again. <laughs> I think yep. that's one of the, <laughs> the interesting things about your book is it's trying to, uh, I don't know if it's consciously trying to do that, but it certainly seems so to me that it's trying to kind of uh, wrestle with and in some ways kind of, you know, peel back the curtain or change the narrative in terms of the way that people think about European history um, and also the ways in which people think about stereotypes of 
the other, the yeah. so-called other. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. That is definitely one of my intentions. You know, um, obviously, it's a very personal journey where, where uh, on the journey you see my own perceptions and my own understanding of this narrative being altered as I wrestle with it. But ultimately, um, I'm also asking um, i'm also asking europeans here to to consider what is their history in its totality i'm asking them to embrace it in its entirety and i'm also asking them why in so, so you know why historically they found it so difficult to embrace this aspect of their history so yeah it definitely is about um you know lifting lifting a curtain so to speak and of course um, we both know that this particular region was behind a a kind of curtain as it's been described the iron curtain and and often that is used as as a way to kind of um, distinguish it from the rest of Europe. Like, oh, you know, these guys were part of communist Europe, and and this is the reason why they're so different to us. But actually, I, I as you know from from having read the book, I argue that there might be other cynical reasons connected to to the Muslim heritage of this region, and and. I, I wonder out loud if if maybe the real reason it's being othered and often seen as quite separate from um, Europe proper might be because it's a convenient way to distance mm -hmm. itself from that Islamic heritage and that Islamic presence, that living Islamic presence. Right. And some of the Europeans are having these types of, uh, I, I guess, struggles, especially with the question of, you know, Turkey and the European Union even. Yeah. And some of those yeah. other countries. Yeah. Um, th let's talk about this travel question that, that you uh, just raised. Um, like when I think about traveling to Europe, you know, very, very seldom do, do I think about travel to the Balkans. And I don't know why, but it's out of the it's off the tourist trail for me, maybe because we grew up at the time when we heard about, you know, turmoil, political turmoil, warfare, stuff like that in that region. But um, do you think that or do you get any sense that this this area is off the tourist trail because of a misunderstanding of of kind of the religious history there i think there's there's absolutely no denying that the recent conflicts and the recent wars and the and the imagery that you and i both grew up with of the balkans has played a massive part yeah um in in kind of deterring us and and making us think twice and it's not the kind of region that immediately turns up on our it's it's you know it doesn't make the front cover of Condé Nast traveler let's let's <laughs> let's face it you know it's not the kind of place that we immediately think of when we think of going away on holiday and although that is changing with parts that are certainly in that region so say for example croatia which has done a marvelous job of attracting people um through various strategies but i do think there are there are other hang-ups that have developed um since then i i had to i had to really kind of wrangle with my with my own um um prejudices that had had been forged through for example the way in which um albania has been depicted in, in, in through through hollywood movies for example you know and and even as i was entering albania i had all this trepidation that that i was resisting because i i knew that it wasn't founded on any real experience but it was it was based on the kind of you know movies like taken <laughs> and i found it hilarious that Albania had tried to turn this on its head by by developing a whole kind of counter tourism strategy, which was called taken by Albania to try and get <laughs> get those people who who are struggling with the concept of Albania as a holiday destination to see it for what it is. And when we were on the ground and we we're traveling around Albania, it was just as amazing as any other country. And I knew that as somebody who was, um, you know, very, very well traveled and as somebody who who had dealt with misconceptions and stereotypes throughout my whole life. Um, and yet it was so hard even for me. And, and so, yes, this, this part of the world does suffer from that. It continues to suffer from a lot of this. Um, but of course, I make the case that this isn't new and this, is, this goes way beyond the, the, the recent um, kind of um, communist um, facade or, or, or impression of, of it being a, a kind of communist region. I, I use um, literature that is pre-communist literature written by English um, writers and English speakers and, and explain how, you know, long before communism, when, when this part of Europe was, quote unquote, very much Muslim Europe um, as part of the Ottoman Empire, it, it was being depicted in this kind of nasty way and it was being seen as, you know, very different from the rest of Europe and it was being othered and it was being identified as, as something separate. And so I think that continued and, and that's the kind of baggage that has come through 
even in in modern travel writing, be it consciously or unconsciously, and and that's what I try to allude to within within the um, book uh, right. when I bring those examples out and and suggest that you know somebody as recent as Michael Palin um, cannot get away from this because even Palin, like myself, we, this is the literary heritage that we we stand on the shoulders of, you know. Um, the, the literary heritage that we stand on the shoulders of travel writing emerged out of, a, in the English speaking world, it emerged primarily out of a colonial class. And often it was, it was travel, uh, it was being written primarily for the purposes of, of colonizing in some cases. And in other right. cases, it was done by people who belong to the colonial class. So even if their intentions were not as cynical or sinister, they carried those um, perceptions and those negative perceptions of the natives um, and and they saw them as inferior and this came through in their writing writing that of course many of us embraced you know I as as I developed as a travel writer um, early on I read Burton you know um, I read um, the works of Charles Doty I read you know Burkhart who isn't English but I read his translation and I was excited by these great Victorian explorers and early European explorers and their works. And, and then as I began to kind of mature as a writer and also as a critic, I began to realize that as exciting as it was, it had also done a lot of damage that we are often oblivious to, you yeah. know? Right. Um, and like I say, even, even the likes of Palin and other modern writers aren't immune to this. And, and I'm not suggesting that they do this with any um, cynical intent, but um, when you are brought up in a literary heritage, it's often something you do not realize you have uh, unconsciously carried forward. And then we also have the issue within travel writing, of course, that often those who are doing the travel writing come from a very narrow demographic themselves. Right. Um, and it's often the white um, middle-class, middle-aged man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the, I'm glad that you're bringing this up uh, because when we speak about Islam in Europe, I think often the, the discussions uh, are on the topics of like terrorism and assimilation and laicite, the more, right. Um, and, and your, your book tries to have a different conversation. Um, you know, I think one that has gained steam in recent years, as you mentioned, this the subject of decolonizing travel travel writing. So, um, yeah, so you you've kind of alluded to this, but um, let's drill down and, and talk about this specifically, if you can. Like, as from your perspective of, as a travel journalist, what what types of specifically what types of narratives narratives do we continue to see spun in travel media uh, about about Islam? I mean, forget about Burton. Uh, is is there any kind of issues today that that um, you know kind of bubble up to the surface intentionally or unintentionally? Yeah, I, and I think um, myself as a Brit and yourself as an American, we mm -hmm. can testify to this in 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 the recent kind of political landscapes that we've experienced and and the political dramas we've witnessed. You know, the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Um, um, highlights just how um, easily um, negative, quote unquote, truths about um, Muslims can be normalized as part of a national discussion. You know, okay. I did a I did a program um, called Mosques of America in the run up to the Trump um, presidential um, race. Um, in, in when, just as he was, he was being considered as a as the president of the U.S. And I remember going across the U.S. and having a similar kind of sensation. There was all this rich and amazing Muslim heritage of of um, American Muslims who had arrived, you know, not too long after quote unquote white Europeans. Um, and some of these um, indigenous American Muslims were white Europeans because they'd come <laughs> from Lithuania, they'd come from Poland, they'd come from Bosnia, and and these discussions had never been had these the, 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 it, it had never been brought to the fore that you know there, there's there's this whole community of of um american muslims who are just like the quote unquote white americans and visiting their mosques you know highlighting the fact that some of these mosques were over 100 years old and still functioning and then to speak to the muslims uh, um, in a, in a follow-up program that I did where we looked at um, Trump's America, so to speak, uh, Muslims in Trump's America, it was called, a year after his 
his um, presidency, a year into his presidency. And it was just devastating. You know, it was really, really tragic listening to how fearful Muslims had become in the US, how sad they felt that this this idea of Islam and terrorism had become synonymized. You know, they were one and the same in the eyes of many non-Muslims. The the idea that, you know, all all Muslims had this kind of backward attitude to the world. Um, and, And sadly, I heard a lot of this also in the um, during the um, Brexit campaign, where um, and and I I allude to a lot of this in the book because of course the trip was done during the summer of Brexit and um, you know Muslims in Europe were being depicted as these kind of pariahs who had come across from somewhere in the east. Immigrants. It was almost like watching the movie Three Hundred and the Persians were coming over these monstrous creatures, you know, the way the way in which Omar's, <laughs> Omar describes them in his Iliad, you know, these kind of bizarre, um, almost um, other humanistic kind of creatures coming over and, and they were going to, you know, um, steal all your children and, and, <laughs> and rape all your women. And and if we didn't leave Europe, they would they would end up here, you know, and and they would they would consume us as well. And I just couldn't believe that these awful, historically repeated nonsense was finding traction again. Yeah. So I I find I think the scariest thing is Jeremy, not the kind of um, stereotypes and negative um, rhetoric that appears, but how quickly it's accepted and normalized, right. you know, I, I, as you know, from my book, I experienced a lot of racism for, for being from um, Bangladesh and not being white English in my childhood. Um, and then when the Islamophobia kicked in, it just, you know, it just astounded me how quickly it became okay to say these things and nobody was being pulled up on it. And, and I think that what we witnessed during the kind of um, Brexit and the Trump um, presidential campaign was a period of legitimizing a lot of this and, and saying to a lot of people who, who harbored these, these notions that it's okay to say this in public and it's fine. And, and I'm not saying the book is here to try and counter all of that, but the book is certainly here to say, that you know, Muslims are not foreign to to Europe. Muslims are are a part of the European cultural landscape and narrative, and and actually, Muslims have contributed amazing and wonderful things to that narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I laughed when you you mentioned the thing about stealing children, <laughs> just because it's yeah. so blood. You know, it's just so ridiculous. But mm-hmm. it made me think about you know this earlier European tradition of black pita. Uh, you know this mm-hmm. um, this moor, like literally of kind of painted tar black that would. Kind of go to, um, I guess, Northwest Europe, Holland, somewhere around there. I'm not exactly remembering correctly, but you know, th- he would come around on ships from mm-hmm. Africa during Christmas time and he would threaten to steal the bad children or to take the bad children away with him mm-hmm. <laughs> back to Europe. And of course, it's the same thing. And of course, the more, the more in, in at that p- period in history was synonymous with Muslims. Right. Right. So and you can see it's a, a direct recreation of that horrible, nasty rhetoric, um, which also when we start looking at um, the anti-Semitism that Europe was historically famous for, but is now in very much denial about, all of this was used against the Jews as well. Right. It was used against the Jews, you know, this idea that they were drinking the blood of dead Christian children and all these other horrific, um, you know, um, awful myths that were developed um, about um, J- Jewish people and Jewish culture, and and ironically, and one of the one of the most amazing pieces of heritage that um, uh, Muslim heritage that I came up, came up on in Europe was, ironically, that one of the safest places for for twelve centuries or so in Europe was under Muslim rule for the Jews. So mm-hmm. so the the continent's most persecuted religious group found sanctity and sanctuary n- n- nine times out of ten in places where Muslims were the rulers. And this was something that everybody had overlooked um, in, in popular writing, or, or when I say overlooked, it, it just wasn't important to them. And I'd even overlooked, and I got angry with myself when I realized it, that I, it, was, it had been staring me in the face. 
You know, I, I hadn't put the two together after after the Muslims had been kicked out of Spain. They arrived in because of the Ottomans. They were brought over this uh, primarily brought over by um, the Ottomans into other parts of the Balkans. The Sephardic Jews suddenly had a presence in the Balkans that wasn't historically there. And this is a continuation of the protection they had received during the Umayyad period and various other um, Muslim rulers in the Taifas and so on. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were periods of times when you had some, you know, very, very bizarre uh, Muslim rulers like the Almohads who, who started to kick out Jews and that and clearly had no idea what true Islamic um, understanding of these things was. But apart from those exceptional um um, you know, exceptions to the rule, largely for 12 centuries until the Nazis arrived, the safest places in Europe tended to be, for Jews, tended to be under Muslim rule. And not just Jews, also the, the various Christian sects also found a lot of sanctity and, and found a lot of, lot of um, you know, safety and felt comfortable and, and relaxed enough to live their lives under Muslim rule in, in, in many cases. And, and for me, this was a really really proud thing to to realize as a muslim of europe myself it was something i felt was was mine to own and 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 keep All right there's a conversation about this in terms of um the treatment i'm more familiar with the conversation about this in spanish historiography but you know this idea that the the people of the book um Indeed. protecting the people of the book because there is you know, an intellectual shared tradition here in terms of intellectual history with mm-hmm. Abrahamic religions. And it just mm-hmm. seems, you know, just like a decent thing to do to not, to not mm-hmm. be a dick to, <laughs> to other people. But I guess, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. to, and, and, and to be honest, most most progressive thinkers, they, they, they see that as the premise and the beginning of, of, of embracing people of all faith and no faith in this way. And most progressive Muslim thinkers today uh, extend that beyond um, any of those, um, you know, just just the people of the book, so to speak. For, 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 for many of us, including myself, this was the, the, the beginning of a momentum that should go on to embrace all people of all faiths and no faith. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was it was laying the blueprint for that. But you're right in 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 Spain, um, the most famous example that we often hear about when it comes to the European context is is this idea of la la convivencia. You know, this this um, coexistence, peaceful coexistence um, in in places like Cordoba and and Granada, where where I've travelled extensively as well. But I I also um, using the modern Bosnian term of komsiluk. I point out that actually. Um, my my um, travel companion, the the 17th century Ottoman Evliya Celebi, makes me realize that this was a normal part of Balkan life under the um, um, during the Ottoman period. You know, everywhere you went, the the Balkan equivalent of La Convivencia was everywhere. Because I arrived thinking Sarajevo, you know, the Jerusalem of Europe. Oh my God, you know, this this exceptional place where where I'm going to learn about a history that was similar to Moorish Spain, and then. As I'm reading Jelebi, he's uh, sorry, Elia Jelebi. He's he's like, yeah, and then you know, turned up in Novi Pazar, and the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims were hanging out, and then I was here, and they were hanging out, and it was all very matter of fact. He wasn't talking in this exceptional way, and and the reason he wasn't talking in this exceptional way is because this was his normal universe. Right. Whereas when I was reading the the perspective of the European who had turned sorry the Western European or, or um, the the North Northern European when they had turned up to view these um, quote unquote phenomenons they often used terminology that made it sound exceptional that made it sound exotic that made it sound like this was something exclusive and and that's because it wasn't normal in their world because sadly most of the time their world was relatively intolerant mm-hmm. in in comparison. And so that's why uh, some of these places ended up getting dubbed the Jerusalem of Europe and that, because the people who were doing dub- the dubbing were the people for whom it was exceptional. But if you'd asked Evliya Celebi, you know, where's the Jerusalem of Europe? He'd probably laugh at you and say, what Jerusalem of Europe? It was all <laughs> like Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you brought Celebi up because he acts as one of your your Virgils, so to speak, in the book. Um, he, he wrote a, mm-hmm. a book called The Book of Travels which you mm-hmm. refer to and you consult during your, your trip um, in, in the area. I, I hadn't heard of Chelebi before. Uh, or I'm glad, Jeremy, because that's the yours. point. I wanted yeah. to introduce you to him. But it sounds like he's an interesting historical source. Um, so like, can you just tell us a little bit more about this guy? Like, Who, who was he and, and, and what, what I guess what's so special about this book of travels that, that you refer to in the book? So, uh, so Evlia was probably kind of like 
that, that we know of, one of the first real middle stroke, upper class, rich kid hippie, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I say that is, you know, he was one of the first guys we know of um, because it, it, it's in his writing that loved to travel and decided to use the world around him so he could do this for as long as possible, you know, which was a total of almost four decades. And you and me as, as, as people who love travel know that this is the dream for a lot of people. Um, but the other thing is he comes from this really privileged background with connections to the Royal Court, which of course is why um, he was able to get it facilitated. Um, and, and I compare him to the hippie because you know, um, his his name actually earlier is is when you pronounce it in the Turkish, and I hope any Turkish listeners don't get offended by this, but I'm going to try. It's earlier, earlier, and and actually that's from the Sufi term aulia, and and I'm now pronouncing it in a very Latin way, <laughs> aulia, and aulia means a friend of God. So he had this mystical Sufi thing going on, and as you and I both know, the the early hippie travelers of the 60s and 70s, most of them came from these relatively wealthy middle class backgrounds, and were really fascinated by Eastern um, mystical faiths mm -hmm. such as Sufism. So so this is the reason I, I I say he's probably one of the earliest examples. But of course, his journey was very different. You know, he came from a privileged background um, and, you know, he he was growing up at a time just just after the reign of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, um, whose reign is seen as the absolute pinnacle and zenith of, of Ottoman um, um, Europe or, or Ottoman Empire, full stop. And so this was a time when the world was in awe of the Ottomans and Muslim culture generally. So he had access to a lot of resources um, and, you know, as a result, he was able to travel extensively, normally protected by these great patrons. Um, and I think he was he, he was just this really easygoing companion because most of his um, travel buddies seem to speak of him in this kind of, you know, like he was a great guy to hang out with. He was a great entertainer. Um, you know, um, the, the first time he he grabs the attention of one of the sultans is because he he hears him reciting the Quran in, in the Ayah Sophia when it was a mosque. And his voice is so beautiful, it grabs the attention of the sultan. Um, so this isn't some kind of, you know, backpacker. Let's let's get that straight. You know, this is someone who had a huge entourage, was usually moving around with pashas. His uncle was one of these um, really influential pashas who was married to a sultan's daughter. So, you know, that's why he was able to travel around. But the reason he's important, of course, is he was traveling around, for me especially, he was traveling around Europe at a time when Europe was probably the most Muslim it had ever been since the Iberian um, um, episode. Um, and so he offers a glimpse of that Europe that is no more. Um, but also he offers it from the perspective of a Muslim. Um, and I should also make clear, um, right now to all the listeners, but that I am not an authority on Evlia by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I was only able to access uh, a, a tiny part of his ridiculously huge um, um, volumes of travel writing um, because of the amazing work done by certain translators. And so I could only access those bits about the countries I'd been to that had been translated. Most of his work remains in, in the classical um, Ottoman Turkish. And it's very, very difficult for me to access that. So the 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 earlier that I'm presenting to you, Jeremy, is just a tiny perspective of him. And he may be, you know, he may turn out to be a very different individual by uh, if you were to speak to an expert. But this is the earlier that I moved around with, you know, and, and he was someone who was able to to show me um, Muslim Europe through the eyes of a Muslim, which is something I wanted to do, because, of course, that again lends itself to the earlier discussion we were having about decolonizing travel writing, because all the other writing that I had access to as an English native speaker was written primarily by Western Europeans on this region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just that book seems fascinating. And I get the mm -hmm. sense that as you're reading Chelebi and you and your family are traveling through the Balkans uh, and you're at the same time reading Chelebi's work and experiencing the Balkans for your own, it seems that there's this strange parallel as if time stood still, as if, you know, th mm -hmm. things have not changed as much as the narrative wants to present yes. to us. Like this, mm. it is as if it were, was back in Chelebi's day, it seems in, in some episodes, of course, in others, uh, less so. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, look, there is absolutely no denying that large parts of Chelebi's world have completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when I was in places, and it took me aback, when I was in places like the two... Um, the two towns that I, um, you know, wax lyrical about in Albania, Berat and and Girokasta, um, the 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 kind of physical um, aesthetic visual look of these places, despite Enver Hodges' best efforts to de-Islamize them, they they look like they they've come straight out of the pages of Elia Chelebi's work. Um, and that's because of the the way in which the the historic Ottoman houses have been preserved. Um, and in the case of Berat, several of the mosques have survived. In the case of Girokasta, only one has survived. And you you hear me lament to an extent the the fact that this mosque or that mosque that Chelebi talks about is no longer there, or or that Sufi lodge is no longer there. And and the thing that I lament the most, um, not not lament, sorry, but at least look back on and say, you know, it, this is what it was like, is that actually both of those places were also, it sounds like, great places of um, um, Islamic education and scholarship. Mm-hmm. which is not what you immediately think of when you think of Albania, you know? <laughs> and yet, Elia Chelebi was talking about poets sitting around, scholars coming from all over to learn hadith, you know, the, uh, that's the Islamic traditions, to learn Quran, to learn how to recite, to learn how to interpret. So, yes and no. But I, I think, um, and, and Tim McIntosh Smith um, in, a, in a wonderful exchange said to me, you know, one of the wonderful things about what we do, because he, of course, followed in the footsteps of Ibn Battuta much more thoroughly than I have with Elia Chelebi, is that it's the closest thing we get to time travel, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. It's the closest thing, you know, when you're sitting there and you're reading Chelebi and you're imagining this bustling Ottoman market where, you know, um, crystal clear water is running under the feet of handsome young Albanians as they work the leather or whatever. It's, you just can't beat that. And, and, and I think where I, I jump between his world and my world, Maybe I've also sometimes presented it as being closer to his world than it really is. Right. You know, that's just me getting maybe a bit carried away because the sad reality is a lot of it, um, as as my blurb in, 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 I think it's in the book or suddenly on one of the descriptions says, you know, I, I began that journey worried that most of it had disappeared. And yes, I was surprised by how much of it had survived, but that also made me sad imagining how much more had been destroyed. Because I know, for example, during the Bosnian conflict, to to use an example that I know well, that, you know, certain parts which are now part of the Republic of Saperska, um, you know, like almost like a satellite of Serbia, let's be honest, um, you know, certain parts there, entire entire cities and towns had every single mosque and every single um, Islamic school and every single building that was connected to the Muslim identity raised to the ground. So... There are places that we turned up in where it was obvious that this heritage was something that they were not proud of, they were not willing to embrace. And, and they have their reasons for that. I'm not suggesting that they're not necessarily justified in not wanting to embrace it. But the reality is there were places where I, I could see from what Chelebi had written and what I was seeing how much had disappeared. Right. The past is a foreign country. I want to move on mm. and, and talk a little bit about um, some, some questions of uh, craft here. Um, so as we kind of mentioned just a few moments ago, the book recounts, you know, basically a family road trip, right? A holiday that you took a few Indeed. years back. Um, uh, and, and, but since then, and of course, before the publication of the book, you've written on the area, on the topic um, for other publications. So I'm just a few questions here, like walk us through uh, the, the, the path that you took from, you know, writing about your interests during a family vacation to a book or, you know, writing about a topic, your beat, right? Your, your niche, your area of interest, mm-hmm. writing articles and assignments and doing assignments based on that interest. How does that, if you can articulate this at all, how, how does mm-hmm. one get from there to, to book? Well, I, I can articulate it because I had a plan. So, you know, I realized um, very quickly after I, I began a family because I, I became a parent quite young. And also I don't come from a very privileged background. I, I don't have the capacity to be able to just up sticks and wander the earth if I wanted to and so on. That if I wanted to be a travel writer, I'd have to work very, very hard and I'd have to find a way to juggle it around um, bringing up a family, paying a mortgage, feeding the kids and so on and so forth. 
But also I really, really did love traveling with my family. And so very, very, very early on when, when I want to take combine my, my love of writing with my love of um, Islamic heritage and travel, um, obviously it helped to realize that my passion could potentially be a niche. Um, my interest in Islamic heritage in the Western Hemisphere, I, I quickly realized it's quite interesting for people. And and travel to, to do it while I, whilst I traveled made sense because it was a very nice way of presenting this information um, and, and showing people a different side of places they thought they knew. Um, so often what I would do is I would, uh, um, I would combine a lot of our, our um, holidays um, with my own interests. And, and also because we're a Muslim family, they were not exclusively my interests. But of course, after about the third or fourth um, mosques, or actually the first or second mosque, your kids are going to get a little bit fed up. So <laughs> it doesn't matter you know, if it was built by Sultan the Magnificent, um, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, or if it was built by some amazing pasha. They, they, by that point, they couldn't care less. They, ju- they just want to know where the beach is or, right. or whatever. Okay. <laughs> so I have a very understanding family. I have a very, very understanding wife um, uh, who humors me. And, and also we always talk about finding that balance. And, and I, I, I hope I got a bit of that across as well in the, in, in the narrative when, when my wife has to return and, and me and the girls negotiate, you know, how we're going to spend the rest of the time. And, and it's that kind of negotiation that's allowed me to combine the two because I knew I didn't have the luxury of going off and doing these trips and tours on my own and, and being able to write about them and earn enough to survive. So I, I developed that plan of, you know, first carving out a niche and a reputation. And, and then, you know, when, when, whenever I traveled to, to keep meticulous notes in the hope that one day one of these trips could potentially become one of these books and, and clearly the, the one that, you know, the, the big trip to the Balkans, I, I sensed that almost immediately. So that's the one that I knew, but I still had to sit on it for a long, long time because um, getting a publishing deal is nigh on impossible when, when you're one unpublished and, and two, you know, um, you're trying to shout in a very, very noisy place. Um, so what, what do you mean by that? It was, um, so everyone wants to get their book published and, and there you are, you're trying to tell everybody that your book is more interesting than others. And then whilst the niche helps, the niche certainly helps because people are interested in you, but the niche can also make you too risky in an industry publishing in an industry that claims that it wants to take risks, but actually nine times out of 10 sticks to convention. So mm. it was a case of how do I find the balance between becoming niche enough that people are interested in me, but also not becoming too niche where I'm a, I'm, I'm a risk. And I think I teethered on the, on the too risky side for quite some time, which is why I struggled to find a publisher for a very, very long time. And, and I almost lost heart. And then what I did was, you know, um, I'd, I'd been reading lots of stuff about how important marketing is, how important it is to develop a profile, um, how important it is to have good networks. And I, I felt like I'd done a lot of that. And still I was, I was struggling because when I was sending out my pitches, I was getting nothing. You know, I wasn't even being acknowledged. Um, and ironically, it was during the pandemic when, when I had more time to kind of really think about this and, and work on my book a bit more. Um, my wife suggested I should try and um, consult a mentor because I felt I was losing heart and I felt like I was, I was in a place where this wasn't ever going to happen almost with the, the, the book that eventually got published. I'm talking about. Um, and it was with the help of the mentor who helped me to polish it, craft it and put together a, a really good pitch and proposal, something I had to pay for again, you know, and not everybody has that luxury that made a massive difference for me personally. Um, you, you see, I feel like Jeremy, I was, I was um, niche in many, many ways, right? First of all, my interest is very, very niche, Islamic heritage, and it's in travel where you don't see much of this. And I was not your typical travel writer. I was brown. I was um, Muslim. I was quite proud of being Muslim. You know, I hadn't been previously published. There was a lot, in my opinion, that was going to work against me. So when I turned to this mentor, I felt like this was a good thing to do. But now I was looking for an agent and a publisher in a pandemic. <laughs> you know, right. when nobody wants to spend any money. Um, but clearly, 
Um, my agent found my work very interesting. She was actually um, initially my mentor. And then when she started to pitch it out, um, you know, we went to a host of names, but um, Brat was the only one who was willing to commit. You know, right. they, they were willing to commit. We heard some wonderful noises from other other publishers who, out of respect for Brat, I'm not going to name. Um, and, you know, some of the more established, some of the quote unquote giants of the of the publishing world said some very nice things. But nobody was willing to commit. And, and, and I believe that's because I was too risky. You know, there was many things about what I was offering that hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. And and they probably wondered if there is even an audience for this. And I know this because I'm, I'm also a media lecturer. So I teach this stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd spent years applying what I'd learned and learning about marketing to try and do this correctly. Uh, sorry, not correctly, but to try and you know do it in a way that would be a success. So when I look back on it and I reflect, I think that's the reasons why. Um, that maybe some of them weren't willing to take a punt, whereas Brat was. And I'm very grateful because they've been absolutely amazing. And and the autonomy and respect they've had for all the things I want to say, you know, um, I, the thing I forgot as well, I I, I was going to shout about decolonizing and, and I had done him as, as a writer anyway. And this also was was new territory for, for a lot of people, I think. Right. And the, the way that you described that losing heart in terms of finding an agent mm-hmm. or a publisher and, you know, the wonderful noise <laughs> that, that you hear from um, other publishers uh, that mm-hmm. just won't commit to taking your book. I think these are very uh, common experiences for people finding, Indeed. trying to find agents and, and publishers. And I'm, and I'm glad that you stuck with it. But circling back mm-hmm. to uh, this point that you just raised, um, you know, the proposing or, or pitching a somewhat controversial subject, or as you put it, an unconventional uh, topic in publisher uh, in publishing, um, mm-hmm. you, you kind of risky in a way, but also uh, a, a conversation that, as we mentioned earlier, it's kind of gaining steam and gaining attention, mm-hmm. rightfully so, on the subject of mm-hmm. decolonizing uh, travel uh, writing in, mm-hmm. in various ways. So, I'm just wondering if you had any sense of like how you know riding that wave, and I know that you're not riding a wave like an opportunist, but it's timely in, in, in that there is a wave of interest in this mm-hmm. subject and you're having that conversation. I, I think the timing ma- made a massive difference. Um, but even before I'd written the book, I was I was saying these things, right. you know, I was being invited to speak about decolonizing travel writing. I was I was clearly um, you're not jumping on the bandwagon. I was making the point that, you know, this uh, mine is a voice that is quite lonely because there are no Muslim travel writers. Okay. There are Muslim influencers, travel influencers and bloggers. And without disrespecting them, it's not the same thing. You know, travel writers, in my opinion, are the ones who do the deeper dives and, and you don't have many voices like that. Um, so I guess th- there's, there's two things I want to say here. The first thing is as from the, from the perspective of somebody desperately seeking a publishing deal, mm-hmm. if there is a trend or a zeitgeist for want of a better phrase, that you can authentically identify with. And what that would normally mean is, you know, you just start using the terminology that is being used, but it means the same thing as what you've been doing anyway. Right. Then don't hesitate. You know, you, you got to do what you got to do to get that first deal because getting that first deal is so hard, Jeremy. You know this, having spoken to so many authors, it's some people don't even get it and then they give up. And, and so... Or I'm kind of almost saying whatever it takes, but I'm also saying, you know, without selling yourself out. Yeah. And and so I didn't at any point feel like I was, you know, getting close to selling myself out because um, the, the idea of decolonizing was the whole reason I started writing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to say, look, you know, for too long, Muslims have been represented by people who aren't Muslim in the English speaking world. Okay, and we need Muslims to speak about Muslim culture, just in the same way we need black writers to talk about black culture. And we need, you know, South Asian writers to talk about not not because I'm I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying all that other writing is suddenly, you know, nasty and cynical and chuck it all out. It's just the spectrum is too narrow and we cannot pretend that, you know, travel writing um, is, is somehow reflective of a particular culture if if we're not getting the insider's perspective as well as the outsiders, because for too long, the outsider's perspective has been taken as somewhat neutral and in a, in a, in a more worrying case, authoritative. And that's been a big, big problem. And so that's why, you know, for me, jumping onto that, um, not, not jumping onto it, but, but um, being a part of that 
I, I, I feel like it was very organic in, in my, in my um, opinion. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I would say, like if there is something that feels um, authentic and it's, it's, it's going to help then go for it, you know, because we, 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 us, us, you know, author, author wannabes, we, we need to do what we need to do to get that deal. That first deal is the one that opens the doors and, and, you know, hopefully will, will lead to more. Mm-hmm. You've been writing about these topics well before, you know, your trip with your family. Um, anybody who can look back in the record and, and see your publications will be able to authenticate that, you know, you're not jumping <laughs> onto the bandwagon here. Um, and I hope I, I, um, I didn't misspeak and, and um, imply that or, or. No, no, no. I, I, I knew exactly what you were saying because you obviously we're, we're both trying to think about people who are listening that want to get published and how what I did might help them. So, yeah, no. I totally get that, Jeremy. Well, Tariq, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I promise I wouldn't keep you for for too long. Can you uh, close us out and uh, let us know where we can find you online? Yeah, of course. Um, so I have my own website, which is www.tarikhussain.co.uk. I'm on Twitter at, at underscore Tariq Hussain. I'm also on Instagram at Tariq underscore Hussain. And on Facebook, I'm Tarek Hussain, author. I have a page there with with all my bits and pieces going on. We'll put the links to all of those um, sites and social media accounts in the show notes. Uh, So if anyone that's listening wants to check him out, you can go to the show notes at travelwritingworld.com. Tarek, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It's been an absolute pleasure. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.